Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Today we are joined by Father Dan Hanley, a priest of the Diocese of Arlington and the Associate Director for the USCCB's Committee on Clergy, Consecrated Life, and Vocations. Father Hanley, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. We get to have our first actual in-person interview finally, so good. this is good to, good to have you here. So, Father Hanley, you've uh, worked in vocations for a little while now, right? Yeah, I worked uh, at the seminary for five years, and then just as a parish priest, uh, working with different people discerning their vocations uh, to all different walks of uh, life. Great. And we've talked uh, in a few episodes now, uh, first about the discernment of spirits with Father Tim Gallagher, Mm -hmm. and then with a friend of yours, Father Carter Griffin, about discerning priestly vocation primarily. So... When we talk about vocation, you know, before in our earlier episodes, we were talking about the vocation that applies to everybody. Mm-hmm. So in what Lumen Gentium, I think, they articulated it as the universal call to holiness. Mm-hmm. So is that something that impacts your work with more particular vocations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you're, when you're a priest in a parish or, or campus ministry and you're dealing with young people who are trying to understand and figure out their life, one of the things that when they're, especially if they're sincere and they're prayerful, they're trying to find out what God wants them to do. They think, you know, I gotta, before I can start everything, I have to really figure out what exactly God wants, wants me to do. What's my vocation? Am I supposed to be a priest or a nun? Am I supposed to be some other kind of vocation? Is God calling me to be into the married life or is there something else, some other vocation? And honestly, it, it can sometimes cause a lot of anguish and a lot of kind of fence sitting and not getting on with, with your life. I think it's, uh, the first thing people need to realize is what's most important is, of course, the universal call. It's funny, uh, sometimes jokingly, if I know someone well, I say, oh, I know exactly what your vocation is. And they're like, really? I'm like, yes, I, I, I see it clearly, what your vocation is. And their eyes get wide and wonder, like, what am I getting signed up for? Yeah, and then I say, I'm not Padre Pio. I don't have visions. But I can tell you that your vocation is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You're called to, to intimacy with God. And you're called in that intimacy to God to live to live a life that's holy. Yeah, we call it the universal call to holiness, but it comes with just the, the, the reality of what baptism is. Yeah. By baptism, we have the indwelling of God in us, and God doesn't live in us without effect. Uh, God doesn't, there's no second-rate souls. Everyone is called to intimacy. It's kind of an interesting thing to just think about this from the scripture. Who was more intimate with our Lord? Was it Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, or was it... Peter, James, and John. It's hard to tell, but probably one or the other, you know, we don't know, but I mean, our Lord certainly loved to be around Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. I mean, they were his friends, and they knew him well, and they're saints. And then also, of course, Peter, James, and John are saints. Now, each one was called to a different relationship with our Lord, and and in different purposes to go forward as disciples of Christ. But I don't think we'd say that one or the other was called to more intimacy. Yeah. We know that Our Lady, of course, was called to the, to the greatest intimacy, and so was St. Joseph, who were also called to the vocation of marriage, which is good for us to kind of understand that as well. So just this idea of vocation, the most important thing to do is to first just realize that God is calling you to be close to him. Yeah. And then from that... Everything else kind of takes on a different color. And I think the pressure is off a little bit. If you're just seeking to know him and love him, is this very simply, I want to know you, I want to love you. And then you ask the question, not so much, what am I supposed to do? But 
where do you want me to love you, Lord? And meantime, I'm going to love you wherever I am, right here and now, wherever that is. It's much harder to get a wrong answer there. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great point. So when somebody's in the position of earnestly desiring to love God and to follow his will, what are some ways in which Jesus can call people to a certain way of loving him or a certain way of receiving his love. Yeah, that's beautiful. And sometimes we say Jesus even calls someone to a mission at that point. So sometimes everyone's called to love him. And, and, the, and the way in which we love him is we could say that's kind of our mission in life. He calls us to a mission. It's always good to kind of look at scripture first and see how Jesus calls people. There's a moment where he's, you know, he's surrounded, he's in Galilee still in the Gospels, and it's when he chooses the 12, we can say he calls the 12, but he's, again, he's surrounded by many, many uh, disciples, who, you know, maybe a few thousand. He chooses to himself 12, who he names apostles, which means to be sent, and he sends them forth to preach the gospel, and he founds his church on these on these 12 men who have this mission to do that. We know that also, I mean, it's an interesting thing that others are a little more subtle called. We could say that Mary Magdalene was called to witness, to be the first witness of his resurrection. And, you know, tradition holds that Mary Magdalene kind of gave herself and lived a, lived a celibate life after her conversion. So she was she gave herself exclusively to the Lord in a, in a kind of consecration or proto-consecration, I'll say, a, you know, a consecration at that time. So the idea is that, you know, we have two different things here. We have the desire to radically give yourself to the Lord, and then we have the way in which our Lord kind of brings it out of the person. Beautiful also is just to kind of think about Our Lady and what God had planted in her from her earliest days. I mean, she had a desire and she had consecrated herself to the Lord from the earliest days. That's the kind of, when we say that there's we sometimes have this thing, we talk about the presentation of Mary, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea of that in the church is a feast. The idea of that, that feast is basically that from the moment Mary first became able to make decisions in her life, she was giving herself to the Lord radically and completely. And at some point, and certainly by the time of the Annunciation, she had already vowed herself to virginity to be the faithful daughter's ion to the Lord. She asked the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. Now, she's engaged to be married, and she's got a healthy man who she's going to marry. It seems like an irrational question, which seems to make no sense in the context, unless you realize that she was already promising herself to the Lord by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be only his. Yeah, because it's not like a time-sensitive question like, how can this be since up until now and, and you know, yeah. until I get fully married in a couple months? No, it's not. It's not like that. It's like, how can this be? Because my state in life is to not know man. Yeah, and, and the angel's like, yes, I know. I know what you've promised. The Lord is pleased with that. In fact, he gave that, he gave that desire to you. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is just because we see God working in Mary's heart. We see God working in Mary Magdalene's heart to bring them towards something that later on will become kind of more set in the church. Consecrated virgins, whether they're consecrated virgins on their own or they're consecrated virgins in some kind of institute or religious community. Right. And it's so I guess the best way to put it is that God is moving in souls, inspiring souls and giving souls desires to give themselves in different and radical ways to him. You know, in the history of the church, you know, the early church, we know that really kind of like central to the spirituality of the early church was martyrdom. Right. So, you know, this idea that I want to give myself to the Lord, I want to love the Lord, it, just getting baptized and being a Christian was radical because yeah. you're in danger. You could lose your property. 
you could get thrown in jail, you could be sold as a slave and work in the salt mines or something like that, or you could be tortured to death and lose your life. After the persecution stopped, though, people start kind of like looking back. We could say it's nostalgic, but also there's some reality in it, looking back and saying, wow, those people really love the Lord and gave themselves to him. What are we supposed to do now that things are kind of settled down? How do we live this? And that's where we begin uh, what period called the, like the Desert Fathers. People have heard of that before. And is that the beginning of what we sometimes talk about as religious life? Yeah, I think that's what you would say. There's evidence that beforehand there were there were groups of women who were virgins who lived together. Before that, I mean, even before the end of the persecutions, and there certainly were women that were giving themselves in vows to the Lord of virginity. We have uh, you know many martyrs. Uh, that had gave them gave themselves to Jesus that way and, and refused marriage and, and that's actually probably the reason for their martyrdom. But as far as like coming together in kind of like a, a, a way that historically that we really know about well is this period of the Desert Fathers. We say Desert Fathers, but we do know at the time there was monasticism with women as well. And so it took on different forms where guys would go off by themselves and kind of live in a cave and pray and had all sorts of other varieties of that, the individual by himself. But then it also took the form of of people going off and and being in groups to support each other in prayer. St. Anthony of the Desert is is the story of him is like he just, he's a very young man. He hears a gospel passage and he just sell all that you have for the rich young man. He sells everything and just goes and eventually just goes off into the desert by himself, which incidentally he takes his younger sister who he's in charge of raising because his parents were dead at this point. And he, and he gives them to some consecrated virgins to look after them. So that must have been already in existence before Precisely, he yeah. ushered in this new age. Exactly, yeah. And, and he was not the very first person to do it. He's the most famous to right. do it. This kind of stuff usually emerges, historically stuff always emerge like after it's been going on for quite some time. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And then yeah. people write about it like everybody already knows about it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So that's the beginning. And then as, as things go, I mean, they get a rule of life and they start identifying different aspects and kind of taking the, really, the, the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And we call them evangelical councils because they're a way of understanding our Lord's life, the way he lived. He lived in poverty. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He lived in chastity, perfectly giving himself all for others, mm-hmm. you know, all for others, and not taking to himself a wife, but even more than that, living kind of like this perfect uh, humanity and without without any sin. And then also, you know, the obedience is, is the clearest and the strongest that we see, you know, that thy will be done and the way that he gives himself for our sake on the cross to his father yeah. in his father's will. So that becomes kind of the center of religious life. When you said perfect humanity in relation to his chastity, that's a that's a funny one because I think some people think about Jesus in a secular context, he's understood as being unmarried. Yeah. And they think that this is sort of maybe boring for him. Yeah. And maybe leads people in a sort of last temptation of the Christ kind of direction. Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus, this person I recognize as historically good, but maybe not God on earth, mm-hmm. um, wouldn't it have been nice if, you know, he had been able to get married and, and live life to the fullest or something like yeah. that. But that's not how we understand it because his humanity is actually more fully realized yeah. by the way he lived. Yeah. And I think that the first thing is just kind of understanding what it means to be for chastity. And I think a beautiful word, another word we use for chastity is called holy purity, which is which is really beautiful because the idea of that is you're giving yourself. If we understand what human sexuality really means, it doesn't mean self-indulgence, it means self-gift. Yeah. 
It means giving yourself completely to the other and accepting the other as they are and being open to generate new life. That's what it means in a permanent uh, relationship. And so our Lord had, a, I said he had a perfect humanity, which means he didn't have the dis- disorders that came to us with the fall. In other words, for him, sex was never going to be a selfish and self-indulgent thing. A person was never going to be, a woman's never going to be an object of lust, which is pretty amazing to realize. He saw each one as beloved, valued, and his heart was such, the sacred heart is such, that it's for all humanity. So the idea that he could give his heart, his human heart, to one person only in an exclusive marriage just makes zero sense. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons behind it, but just that idea yeah. that, that his heart was poured out for all because he can love everyone in a radical way. And when I say it's not exclusive to an individual, it's still more intimate than any love between a husband and wife can be even because it's just that's a human love which is gorgeous and beautiful and even elevated in the sacrament but Jesus is more intimate to me more intimate to everyone than we can than any other person can be yeah it's the, person. It's the yeah. communion of the trinity so it's yeah like, that's the, right. the source <laughs> yeah he lives in the he is the communion of the trinity he draws us into it right but he has a relationship in his sacred humanity to us yeah. as we become part of him and, and are intimate with him so the the most concrete way that this is lived out is through those three vows that are shaped by the evangelical council. Yeah, and people are called to those vows by God. It's a beautiful thing we say we they're called to God to make those vows, or three of them, or sometimes one or two of them, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what kind of religious or institute they're called to. But they're called that to that for the sake of intimacy with Him, and we could put it another way: for the sake of their own. Holiness. So the primary purpose of entering religious life is intimacy with God, and which we say is, is growth and holiness. Now, I know that some people say, oh, so it's a self-interested thing. Well, not not really. Not when you consider what, what does intimacy with God mean? It means to enter into Christ deeply, which means to become more and more part, a vital member of the body of Christ. So by its very nature, it's going to be like, it's going to give life outside. It's going to radiate life outside. Many of your listeners probably know who's the patroness of of missions. It's Ooh, I don't think of, I know this one. Therese of Lisieux, who really didn't go very far. She had one trip in her life to Rome, which is not exactly mission territory. And then she was just, she lived in a Carmel and died at the age of 24. And she prayed for missionaries. And she's the patroness of mission. Now, what does that mean? She became a Carmelite out of love for, for Christ. She just wanted to be his. She followed his will. And she gave her heart to him. And as she did that, she, her heart was just so open to all others. And, you know, there, she prayed for the famous, beautiful story. She prayed for this prisoner who was famous. You know, he was, he was a murderer. And she prayed and prayed and prayed. And he repented before he, would, before he was executed. <laughs> she prayed for missionaries. So notice, like, even though she's like, she goes there to love Jesus in an exclusive way, by the very nature of loving Jesus uh, radically, it's just gonna it's gonna be effusive. So charity is effusive; it, it it spills over and out. Sometimes I think about that. Skeptics will criticize people in monasteries like they're doing nothing for the world. And I think about yeah. what would the world be like if they weren't there praying for you twenty four seven. No, and not only that. I used to kind of think, you know, as a priest, I used to go and and I said, you know, when you when you get you're privileged to work with, especially sisters that are that are contemplative sisters that don't have an active apostolate. I used to think, oh, there are they're like our backup. And that's true. But I also think there's another aspect where if we're really, really about fighting principalities and spirits not of this world, 
they're actually kind of the front line because they they are growing in holiness and just just strengthening the body of Christ. And you're the one supplying them. Yeah. The analogy doesn't work perfectly yeah. um, because there's a kind of reciprocity between the sure. two. But it's not a one-way road. It's not that they're just kind of sitting back and, you know, making stuff and handing it to us so we can stay going. No, they're involved in, in a frontline kind of combat to grow in holiness. Uh, and it's really powerful and beautiful to see. Now, you as a diocesan priest, you live your vocation a little bit differently because you don't take vows specifically, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the difference there? Our promises are, as I said, you know, the vows are there to grow in intimacy with God, and in other words, to grow in holiness. That's their primary purpose. But by their very nature, they're going to sanctify the world. As a secondary effect. Yeah, you'd say a secondary effect. But secondary doesn't mean like... Less powerful. Less powerful or, or yeah. irrelevant by any stretch. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's by the very nature of it, it will do that. Mm-hmm. Priesthood, when we take promises as priests, those promises are oriented first and foremost towards the building up of the kingdom. Notice, like, so the secondary effect that we talked about before, the kind of the building of the kingdom, which religious do, but they do it in their desire to to just love the Lord. Now, we may take a promise and say yes to our priesthood, of course, out of love for the Lord and to desire to do his will. But we realize that we're being called into something to do something, which is to build up the kingdom. Now, by saying yes to the Lord and making these promises and living by these promises, of course, we're going to be sanctified. Because that's my path to holiness, yeah. is living li- living my priest- priesthood faithfully. And so we take promises to pray, the liturgy of the hours, which is prayer for the church, uh, giving glory to God for the sake of the people of God. Yeah. And we take a promise of obedience, which means allowing our bishop to place us where we need to be to serve the people of God and build up the body of Christ. And then... Also, of course, we take a promise of celibacy. Notice we say celibacy. Of course, it's celibacy has to be chaste celibacy and living holy purity. But the, the purpose of celibacy, understood more and more beautifully as time has gone on, is to offer our generativity, our capacity to give biological life and be fathers in a family. We offer that. And our desire for a wife, we give that over to the Lord. We put it on the altar and let him generate spiritual life through us. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a fruitful gift to the Lord for the sake of building up the body of Christ. So that's the difference between a vow that somebody in consecrated life would take and a promise that somebody in what we call secular life yes. would take. Yes. And again, both build up the body of Christ both sanctify the person who takes it. But notice there's this like slight difference. You go for the intimacy with the Lord first and foremost to, to grow in holiness, and that builds up the body of Christ. Whereas we take the promise first and foremost to build the body of Christ. And of course, we will grow in, in our own sanctity by doing that. Right. That's interesting because that has ramifications for how we understand married life too, because we talk about vows in mm-hmm. in a wedding, but they're not really vows, right? They're more like promises. They are promises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to, to think about it because in marriage, we realize, and we just talked about human sexuality just a bit ago in our Lord, and we realize that the meaning of, of the conjugal act is, I give myself to you for your sake, yeah. and I accept you, and I take your good upon myself. In other words, I am for you. I mean, in a very simple way, I am for you the rest of my life. Very simple. Think about that. The marriage there is for the sake of the other. And as the two become one, then the two say, I am open. Together they say, I am open to children. 
one of the, we ask these different questions when you're when you're presiding in a marriage as a priest. But one of them is, are you open to life? Or will you be open to bringing children into the world? And they say, we are. It's very beautiful to realize. So there's this idea of like you have given yourself to the other. In other words, you're taking that promise for the sake of your wife, or you're taking that promise for the sake of your husband, for the good of your husband, and the sanctification of your husband in the sacrament of marriage, yeah. you know, to try to help them get to heaven. But then together, you're joining as one for the sake of building up the body of Christ through bringing children to the world, through co-creating, participating in God's beautiful gift of creating immortal human souls, <laughs> which is pretty amazing <laughs> to think about that. What I mean, what an amazing participation in God's in God's life. And we talk about sometimes, you know, marriage being the image of the Trinity, but and St. Paul talks about, though, is really husbands love your wives like Christ loves the church. And then there's a reciprocity between the love. The love is a sacrificial, self-giving love. Marriage is for the sake of the other, for the sake of your spouse and for the sake of your children. But of course, living that well as you do it, you're receiving the graces to do it. Your graces, graces of, of the sacrament of marriage. And not only that, you're growing in love. That's going to, of course, sanctify you. It's going to sanctify you. But notice the first thing is for the sake of the other. Right. With religious life and consecrated life, though, I, I've been talking about how a person enters into it primarily for the intimacy with the Lord. Yeah. But many religious communities that are, that are active have an active apostolate. And so kind of mixed in with that. So it's not like just a clear, pure, simple, okay, the vows are just for your own sanctification. Many enter into it for the sake of, for example, catechizing and educating children. How many women's communities and men's communities are there that that's their purpose? That's the, or yeah, serving the poor or serving in leper colonies. I mean, but notice what St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, always she talked about. It was very beautiful. Serving Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. That is Jesus. So it shows that even though we're making this distinction, it's not like a hard break. Right, because you're still seeking Christ exactly. in whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. It's all seeking Christ, yeah. which is all just kind of like, we realize it all goes back to the universal call to seek the Lord, to love the Lord. And then these have, the modalities aren't as radically different as we think they might be. Yeah. If we're doing them. You know what I mean? If we're doing it. It's sometimes from the outside looking in, it can look very different. But from an interior perspective, yeah. you know what I mean? They're all very, very similar. Right. Okay. So also out in the world, we are talking kind of more recently about single life mm -hmm. as another vocation or maybe a kind of set of vocations. Yes. Can you say a little bit about that? Because I, I think there's less of an understanding about how that can work. Yeah. Single life is one of those things that, that people talk about. And, and I think it's something that needs to be developed in its understanding more deeply. Sometimes we think, it's, is there a vocation to the single life? Like I'm called to the single life as kind of like this broad idea of a vocation. I don't know. I don't know. I think one of the things you, you can be, be sure of, though, is that particular people are called to be single in order to live a particular way with the Lord. <laughs> a great example of that is St. John Paul II, when he was growing up and he went to Krakow, he's a young man. He was like 19 years old when his father died. And there was this tailor who was a third order Carmelite, which means he's not a, he's not a religious. He just gets formation from the Carmelites. And, and he basically had him and some others in this kind of youth group, which is really a prayer group. And he taught St. John Paul II how to 
pray and taught him about St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, which is a pretty big deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And he was single. And he just, he lived a very, very prayerful, simple life in the midst of his neighborhood with his, in a tailor shop. It makes you just think, did he have a vocation in a single life? If you're thinking about it, yeah, he probably did for the sake of doing that. I mean, it wasn't just St. John Paul II. I'm sure that other people can count him as one of the people who helped him get to heaven. I mean, so this idea that God may be moving and living in your life and pointing you to do things that may not allow you to have an exclusive love for a spouse, that you have to give yourself in a broader way to something else. And yet at the same time, you're not called to religious life. You're not called to consecrate yourself or you're not certainly, you might not be called to the altar to be a priest. At the same time, this is God's plan in your life. I would say that it, it has less of a, a kind of, um, I think it would be more particular. It'd be more particular. Yeah, depending on somebody's particular place and their specialty and their individual gifts. That's right. And I think also that there's, and circumstances as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We live in a very difficult and sad age uh, for people trying to get married. It's not always easy, depending on where you live, to find someone. And and so the idea of like sometimes, you know, the vocation of single life feels like something that's just almost taken on without really being wildered, identified, like God is calling me to not get married and do this. Right. And yet, just someone finds himself at a certain point in life thinking, I haven't found anybody. I'm not going to (laughs) settle. I want to give myself, I want to have a good Catholic marriage and I just haven't found anybody at this point. I mean, first of all, I think we just have to acknowledge that that's kind of a byproduct of the culture of death and and the world in which we live in, that there's just not, that they're having trouble finding someone. So there's, there's an aspect of, there's some suffering involved in that, which of course is a suffering that's very readily identified with Christ's suffering for the sins of the world, I think. And to understand it that way and to try to live it that way, not in any kind of morose way, but, but with a, just a joyful way of realizing like, all right, if I don't get a spouse, Jesus must be enough. Yeah. And he will provide. He provides. Yeah. And I can think of some other situations where people might be called to that way of life. Like if they have to care for like an ailing family member with a chronic illness over decades or something like that. um, Kind of a similar thing where they have to really commit to loving somebody, whether it be a parent or a sibling. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, Andrew. You're right. And, and, And when you think about when they do that, basically what they're saying is they're saying a life is worth a life. I give my life. But wait, you're younger. This person's older. Yeah. No, a life is still worth a life. Yeah. I give myself to care for this person. You know, a million years from now, we'll look back at everything with a slightly different perspective, I think, <laughs> from heaven's eye view. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Things that we thought like, wait, why would you do that? We'll think, wow, what a great move. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I gave up driving kids to soccer practice so that my, you know, sister with Down syndrome could... Mm-hmm could be loved or something. Yes, like exactly that. Yeah. right. Yeah. It is tough, I think, for people just because when it comes to single life, it is often seen as the least desirable option for mm-hmm. some. And also there's the least clarity yeah. about it because it's kind of a relatively new concept. concept. Yeah, it's a relatively I mean, new concept. Sure. Newer concept. I mean, yeah. we've always had people that were holy and single. Right. 
And it's always been a part of the church. And, and the church has always relied on them. And they've always done beautiful things. I mean, I was talking about a tailor in, in, in Krakow in 1940s. I yeah. mean, there, there are other people elsewhere. And, and it's less likely their names are going to be known in the future. It's just the way that we're thinking about it is different yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, I also think we need to understand that, I mean, some vocations come in a, for individual people come in a pretty radical, supernatural way where like, you know, they're like St. Paul on the way to Damascus get knocked over. Yeah. But for others, it's just kind of there and it happens. Others, it happens through natural modality. I think with, especially like the vocation to the married life, you know, people say, am I called? Is God calling me to married life? Married life is a supernatural vocation in the sacrament of marriage, for sure, no doubt. It's a beautiful elevation of it, and God's grace is powerful within a marriage. Yet at the same time, it is a natural thing as well. I mean, that's the beauty of the way God can work in natural things. And it's an idea that, that you know, discernment of marriage involves a, a lot of natural modality. Mm-hmm. You know, you pray to the Lord and you open to his grace to see, but you don't need like a sign when you like meet a girl of virtue who you're attracted to and you fall in love with her. And you're like, she's a woman of virtue. She can love. I can love her. I want to spend my life with her. And then you don't have to say, all right, so now I need a sign? No. <laughs> God's given you what you need. Yeah. You know, love the Lord and do what you will. So seek yeah. the Lord's will and then just be like, okay, yep, that's it. If we simply are prayerful and we realize that the best is our, we already, we already got the best. We have him. I have him in the Eucharist. <laughs> I have him in the Eucharist. I can receive him every day in communion. I have him in the Eucharist. I can go visit him every day. I have him and the, and the people around me that I can I can love. And just understanding that, understanding that, living that intimacy with the Lord. From there, it's just a way of trust. Whether we think that, you know, we're having a hard time figuring out what we're supposed to do or we're afraid of making a mistake. It's like God's not wimpy. He's not weak. So if we're prayerful and generous, and I don't mean perfectly generous because all of us are kind of mixed in our motives and we're always figuring new motives out in us. But basically, I'm desiring the Lord. I'm prayerful. I'm generous. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find him. I'm trying to walk with him. He's gonna let you know. We've already won the World Series. Now we're just we're figuring out the parade route. Exactly. That's great. That's great. Yep. Exactly right. Well, Father, this has been great. I think we could probably keep going if we yeah. had more time, but uh, I think we got to cut it off there. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. And we are back with Kara Bach. Kara, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of E.T. the Extraterrestrial and also getting a jump on Stranger Things Season 4, which it heavily, heavily influenced. But we'll talk more about that later when Stranger Things Season 4 Volume 1 comes out at the end of the month. Full disclosure. I swear I saw this when I was a kid, but if I did see it, it's been 30-ish years I didn't really remember the movie going into it. And when I saw that opening scene where they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, I was like, oh, I understand like where Stranger Things got this now. <laughs> yep. It's like just the reference is so strong. Yeah, especially that early scene where you see like the older brother's high school friends with the pizza and everything, like in that chaotic uh, dining room table. That feels like they cloned that almost. E.T. the Extraterrestrial was directed by Steven Spielberg. Obviously, it's one of his best movies, and that's saying a lot. Released in the summer of 1982 and spent 16 weeks, Kara, at number one at the box office. That's incredible. For perspective, 
Avengers Endgame, which I think a lot of people have more immediate experience of, was like the, the highest grossing movie of all time. The number of weeks it spent at number one at the box office was three weeks. This movie kind of owned 1982 in American culture. They've never done a sequel. They did one really notoriously bad video game very <laughs> early on. And that was kind of it. With the exception of a commercial that came out three years ago. It was a Christmas ad. It was the only good thing Comcast ever did. And it was like a, a long ad where E.T. visits grown-up Elliot when Elliot's married and had kids and E.T. spends Christmas with the family. It's beautiful. It's... Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you should check it Is out. Is it the later. same actor? Same actor who played Elliot. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Different... I think different voice actor for E.T. Because the voice actor sounds a little more polished this time around, whereas... The original voice actor for E.T. was like this middle-aged woman who smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. That sounds right. <laughs> and the sound designer was just like, that's perfect. We, that's exactly what I want to work with. Although I got to say, there's a lot of choices in this in this movie that feel a little bit like that, where it's like, that's an interesting aesthetic choice for a big budget Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> you can definitely see some of like the rough edges around this production, which is a little bit surprising. Yeah. You had sent me a link, Good Bread 2, like a, not really a review, but sort of a letter from Roger Ebert um, to his grandkids about the movie. And it was interesting because it was the first time it really struck me that just how much this was like from a kid's perspective, or at least from, you know, E.T. perspective. And it sort of made more sense of some of the, like, kitschiness of it. I mean, honestly, when it first came on, I was like, am I watching Fraggle Rock? This is very strange. But it kind of makes more sense if if it's, like, meant to have more of a childish appeal. You know, it's not trying to be Star Wars, where it has really slick effects. It feels a little more homegrown. Like, the like yeah. even the spaceship feels a little bit like, I could have made that for maybe, like, a <laughs> high school project. I don't know. Yeah, a lot of it is very practical and... It's got a certain charm. Right. Do you have a childhood association with this? Any emotional history? It's funny. I've seen this movie multiple times, but I don't think I really saw it when I was a kid. And I, I remember the first time I saw it, I was kind of underwhelmed. I think I was a teenager and I thought, well, this isn't really my thing. It seems a little schmaltzy or something. I was not old enough or young enough to really enjoy it at all. I but now I totally get it. Now I love this movie. And I think even if you're not nostalgic about watching this movie as a kid, which definitely has its own value, it can still make you nostalgic after the fact, just the way that it films the experience of being a kid. I have a big quote from C.S. Lewis on nostalgia. I don't know if we should do it now or later. It's a long one. This quote I heard from a philosophy professor named Thomas Hibbs, who's currently at Baylor University, and he cited in a talk a quote from C.S. Lewis from uh, one of his books, The Weight of Glory. And he's talking about nostalgia because everybody, especially when it comes to Spielberg movies, says, oh yeah, Spielberg looks at everything through these rose-colored glasses and everything's nostalgic and he's not willing to face the hard truths about life. Which isn't really true about this movie, but some parts of it maybe. Anyway, here's the quote. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. 
The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names, like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that, when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that has settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I think it speaks to a lot of what's going on at the heart of a lot of Steven Spielberg movies, that we feel this drive to go back to this feeling we've had before, and yet you realize when you go back to it, it wasn't there to begin with, and yet where did the feeling come from? That feels like the experience of watching this movie. That longing for, for the unknown, for this like far-off country, is I think something that Elliot feels, especially early on, when he's trying to get into the Dungeons and Dragons game with his older brother and his older brother's friends at the beginning of the movie, this is a very childlike desire to like explore the unknown. And then the unknown comes for him. E.T. comes into Elliot's backyard. In a trope that we're now very familiar with, it turns his world upside down. The way in which it <laughs> turns his life upside down is it immediately impacts his family relationship. Because when he's trying to tell like his mom and his older brother and his younger sister that he's seen this thing, he doesn't know what it is yet. Elliot understands that nobody believes him. And he says, dad would have believed me. The mom's like, well, why don't you, why don't you call your father and tell him about it? And Elliot says, I can't, he's in Mexico with Shelly or whatever her name is. Yeah, which I thought was just a really clever way of laying out the entirety of the dynamic of what's going on with this family. You know, the reply that the dad has run off and the implication of the mom didn't know was just brutal. In three lines of dialogue, you just immediately understand what's going on with this family. I think you can see most of it. Later on, the mom does say that her and her husband have separated. You get the sense that, like, it's very fresh. Like, he maybe just left. Like, he left one of his shirts in the garage, just kind of lying yeah. out. So it's, yeah, this is very new recent thing. So that's the context that this family dynamic is really introduced in. They have to address it because E.T. has shown up and they don't know what to do about it. And the only one who is open to the unknown was his dad, who's now gone. So Elliot's world is getting less and less interesting and maybe, I don't know, less and less magical. That might be how uh, film audiences in 1982 thought about it. <laughs> It sort of opens up this this wound in this family that's this like developing divorce. Because there's never any indication that it's going to change and they're going to be reunited. Dad's gone. Remind me, 
I feel like you know more about Steven Spielberg than I do. I know he grew up without his father. Were his parents divorced? Or did, divorced. Was his dad passed away? Okay. Divorced, yeah. So his dad left when – and they, they reconciled later in life, he and his father. So there's definitely some like autobiographical stuff in here about Spielberg reflecting on his own experience of being a child of divorce and making up his own imaginary alien friend when he was a kid to sort of help fill the void of his dad leaving. Instead of an imaginary friend, we get E.T. When he gets to know Elliot a little bit, Elliot gives him like the most disorganized introduction to humanity ever, where he's like showing him around his room and is like, here, you put the, here's this peanut, you put money in this peanut. So I know, it's like such a kid thing to do. It's yep. just like random junk. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the first thing you need to know about us is these Star Wars toys. It was very of a time though. I loved all the little like, like, oh my gosh, yeah, when it's like random characters I didn't know. And then it was like Boba Fett and Han Solo. <laughs> and like, that is so typical. So we get some Star Wars references in that scene and a Jaws reference too, because he, he has that little fish feeder thing that looks like a shark. And he talks oh. about how the shark eats the fish. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the like the family dynamic and that, you know, Spielberg's inspiration was this imaginary alien who filled some void with his father. The one thing that was interesting to me about this movie is that, you know, Elliot and E.T. have a very special relationship, but it's not clear to me what kind of natural relationship it's trying to point us towards. Because there's elements of it that are sort of, you know, a very deep friendship. But at the same time, there's almost a familial aspect because, you know, at some point, Elliot says, like, I love you. And, you know, like he wants to be the one who takes care of E.T. in a way that I sort of wonder if it's, you know, Elliot being like, I want to take care of this creature in a way that, like, I'm not being taken care of because my father has left. But E.T. also was like... It's not clear, is E.T. his peer? Like, is E.T. also a kid? Is E.T. like supposed to be sort of, you know, relatively younger? You know, in the same way that like baby Yoda is like a baby, even though he's 50. You know, <laughs> like age age is not the question, but sort of like relative emotional impact. And I don't know that it has to be answered, but it's kind of, it is kind of an interesting question of like, what roles are they really filling and maybe they're sort of fulfilling different things for each other. But. That's not a bad comparison with uh, with Baby Yoda because when the the healing ability is discovered, there's like another connection between. It's not the same kind of connection because Elliot cuts his finger, and ET heals him with the glowing finger superpower deal. But while that's happening in the next room, the mom is reading to Elliot's younger sister, and she's reading Peter Pan, and specifically the part in Peter Pan about healing Tinkerbell by believing in fairies. And as Elliot's getting healed, Mom is saying, if only kids believed in fairies. And I think that's meant to be like a sort of analogy for losing the sense of wonder in early 1980s suburbia, where everything is like junk food and gadgets and prefab housing (laughs) housing developments. Yeah, because the feds, the government people, when they show up, it seems like they just want to control E.T. They want to figure it out. Oh, look, he's got six nucleotides or whatever the heck. You know, they're well-meaning, but they don't want to relate to the unknown for its own sake in the same way. Or at least you think they don't. They don't care about E.T., right? Yeah, they make it seem very, the adults seem extremely nefarious. 
granted, to a ridiculous extent, showing up at the house in, like, NASA spacesuits to, like, go into their window. I was like, okay, I'm out. This is ridiculous. (laughs) The story is clearly, like, you're down at their level. You're experiencing it as a kid. And up until the point that the scientists sort of, like, take over their house, up until that point, you're basically seeing them from the waist down. They seem very nefarious. And they come in and they take over, which also seems sort of, like, aggressive and scary. And then you get the scientist who gets down on Elliot's level and talks to him. And then I think they carry it through to the scene after E.T., they assume, has passed away. And all the scientists, like, take off their mask and they're, like, genuinely sad. And I feel like it's the first moment of, like, connecting and humanizing the adults. That, like, adults aren't bad. Like, they also feel the sadness of it even if they have like lost some of their wonder they they still can understand that like yeah this is a a creature that they're sad has has passed away that's a good point carrie because that makes sense of like one of the little bits of trivia that i found you know you they, they take off all their masks and they reveal that they're real human beings not only are they real human beings but they're not actors those are real medical people doctors and nurses from like the nearby hospital that they got to make the scene more realistic oh really yeah so when you see them take off their masks and like not only are they people but they're not particularly attractive or trained at being in front of a camera like the guys are all wearing ugly aviator eyeglasses and have like weird mustaches and receding hairlines and stuff they're real people and that one nurse really got to me who's on duty but also crying Mm -hmm. we just discovered aliens five minutes ago and we did everything we possibly could for him and he still died right in front of us that's that's pretty rough that was like a nicely done turn from we're presenting them as very nefarious and then they twist it i mean they go back to being sort of nefarious at least the like government people you know as they're like trying to catch them when they're getting away but um that's a lot to spring on mom all at once because within like 30 seconds, she gets, hey, we have an alien living in the house. Also, he's dying. Also, your son is dying. Also, the government is invading through your front door and through your kitchen window. Yeah, no offense. Like, she doesn't really seem like the most chill, even heavy parent. So it's like, oh, what a mess. Yeah, she was already had a lot on her plate before that. So how do we feel about this portrayal of like single motherhood? Is your take that she is just generally a scatterbrained person who doesn't have it together? Or do you think she is like just doing her best, raising three kids on her own while working and deserving support and compassion? In the beginning of the movie, I was like, this woman's a hot mess. There were several moments where I was just like, I can't tell this woman's like kind of a flat actress or like if this is part of the portrayal. But then I think in the middle is when, it must be when the official show up. Because she said, oh, no, no, it's when Elliot has gone missing and the police are there. And the police are, like, asking her questions. And she keeps looking in the fridge. And she says, my husband and I are separated. And that's when it connected in my mind that, like, oh, this just happened. It's not like, oh, he's been running off with his mistress for a really long time. It feels like maybe this is all extremely fresh to her and she is reeling. And, like, maybe this has been going on for two weeks. I have never been doing this by myself. I am a working mom. I got to keep everything together. And my husband left me for some, you know, young hot chick, I guess, let's say. (laughs) So I felt a lot more compassion for her in that moment. She felt very realistic, but also like a little bit ditzy. 
Which didn't really, to me, feel like it was any kind of commentary on, like, single motherhood. It was just, the mom's a little spacey. You need a slightly absent parent for most of these 80s movies to work. (laughs) What kind of parents don't notice that their kid is gone for 12 hours? Now, she noticed. She was like, you know, it's definitely part of the plot that she's really mad that they're not home an hour after sunset. So, good for her that she's like, these stupid kids are supposed to be home. But otherwise, it's like, yeah, I mean, if you had like a super on top of it parent, like most of the mischief that kids in these movies get up to would not happen. So you need like a slightly absent parent. Right. Where like E.T. is walking through her kitchen and she hits him with the fridge door and doesn't notice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is not going to happen for somebody who's not a little distracted. Yeah. I wanted to go back to, you know, that scene where she's reading the book to, is it Gertie is the girl's name? Yeah, yeah, Gertie. I felt like that was, you know, kind of this poignant moment, too, of E.T. missing his mom. And kind of like he's clearly like looking on at that scene with a bit of longing because the mom is, you know, she's obviously there like connecting with her daughter very genuinely and like being a good mom. Yeah. It also seems clear that that it's like E.T.'s mom coming to meet him when when the ship comes back. Did you also read that as his mom? I sort of assumed it was. Huh. It's like a, like a parent of some kind or like the person who cares for him. I guess. That's really cute. I guess his parents must have been a little absent that he's the one who like got left behind. Uh <laughs> But that that sort of like reconnecting with, you know, a, a loved one that he sort of is, you know, obviously the mom's not absent. She's like there trying to take care of their kids. Because when, when kids, at least some kids see this movie, they also, without any explicit direction, also interpret that other alien as E.T.'s mom. Which I think is, is a really neat, like, unspoken thing. Like Roger Ebert's grandson in that in that letter you mentioned earlier, like... His grandson said, oh, yeah, that's E.T.'s mom. Wait, why do I think that's E.T.'s mom? But it must be, right? It certainly feels like it. It's like the person who's coming to, it's like, oh, my kids. Like yeah. the, the parents are, think about like the Goonies when all the parents come like running out to meet their kids on the beach. <laughs> the Goonies produced by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> of, course, of course. And like also with going back to the Peter Pan thing, like the Lost Boys in that story also miss their moms. Okay, now... About E.T. being separated from his family, do you think that's why he starts getting sick? Because he gets sick before the government shows up. It's not their fault that he gets sick and dies or doesn't die. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. It's not clear to me why he's getting sick. I guess I sort of took it as like he's not meant to be here and what is he eating? He's eating like gross processed food. Like what's he supposed to eat? I don't know if it's meant to be like a broken heart thing or just like this isn't his home and it's not where he's supposed to be. I guess he's revived because his family's coming back for him? I think so. Because <laughs> the glowing heart thing has something to do with it. Because when he gets lost in in the, in the beginning of the movie, they send out the signal that it's time to come back to the ship and their hearts start glowing. So they, they have some kind of connection that's signified by the glowing heart. And when he comes back to life, that's the first thing you first indication that you have is that his heart starts glowing. Yeah. Which continues when the when his ship comes back and the people you know, his other people are there. The the glowing heart and his general overall health and well being does have something to do with his proximity to his family over time, maybe. I took it as that too. That like there was it was sort of a yeah, I'm not with my people. I can't survive. I think it was also like a you can't survive on your own as a, a strange, strange person in a strange land. This is an elf. 
Nobody is autonomous, yeah. <laughs> no E.T. is an island. <laughs> Has to go back to his galaxy far, far away. Which, there's another Star Wars reference in this where he sees it, uh, the Halloween costume of the person who's dressed up as Yoda and he says, home. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. And Yoda's music from yeah. Star Wars plays when that happens because it's the same composer. It's John Williams. Oh, I did not catch any of that. I have to go back and watch that. The most fun fact that we've ever had on this podcast, Kara, other beings that are the same species as E.T. show up in a Star Wars movie. Separate from this. Which one? Episode one, when you're in the Senate, in the Capitol, you see all these different representatives, you know, from around the galaxy. And in, like, the corner, they put in some ETs. So they're there. Oh. Just saying. Well done. I did not, uh, I did not know that. Some people have drawn a Jesus parallel with E.T. Because the glowing heart is sort of like the sacred heart of Jesus, you know, or you could argue that iconographically it has some similarities. And there's one point near the end of the movie where E.T. is coming out of the van when they're trying to get him to escape. And he has this, like, white robe or blanket over his shoulders that looks sort of mm. messianic. Did that jump out to you at all, Kara? Not at all, no. No, okay, good. Probably a good <laughs> thing because Spielberg uh, debunked that one. He said any parallels like that are coincidental. He's Jewish. His mom would have killed him. <laughs> I mean, sometimes a director or a writer can be like unconsciously influenced by themes that they do not intend. So I won't like say that it's not possible because I mean, if you think about the book Frankenstein, that was meant as like a just a funny story that really? not funny. The author of Frankenstein, it's either that or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. One of those two. It was just a story that they wrote for friends and all of these deep meanings were not necessarily like some big foresight. Oh, there are just these enduring themes that like make stories interesting. So, of course, like if it's a good story, it's going to have some of these ideas in there, whether or not the author intended them. That's a great point. I saw an interview because I am obsessed with Steven Spielberg. I saw this interview where the interviewer was asking him not about this movie, but about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where at the end of that movie, human beings have figured out how to use computers to play music to communicate with the aliens, different aliens. And the interviewer made the connection. He said to Spielberg, your mother was a musician. Your father was a computer programmer. Do you see the the climax of Close Encounters as being like your mother metaphorically talking to your father? And Spielberg said, I never realized that. Thank you so much. That's my favorite question I've ever been asked. I never thought about it that way. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I wonder how much of his stuff is conscious. And even if he doesn't mean it consciously, if it is like kind of baked in there. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, that makes sense because Spielberg is a great writer. I feel like not to say that they're only... A limited number of themes or you know things that you can write about but I feel like really good writers tap into the human experience and tap into you know themes that are are familiar to people and there's a reason why certain kinds of themes come up over and over again it doesn't make them unoriginal it just means that it's like part of the human experience so the fact that there could be some unintentional you know sort of like biblical allegory wouldn't entirely surprise me just because he's a great director. I'll buy it. So just to confirm, Mary Shelley created the story of Frankenstein on a rainy afternoon when she was staying with her husband, the poet Percy Shelley, and their friend Lord Byron. Their group trapped indoors in the inclement weather passed the time telling and writing ghost stories. 
<laughs> so she just said, I'm going to fool around and, want, and write this genre-defining work of literature on a whim. Yeah, sounds seems like it. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm glad that E.T. was reunited with his family. That was also very heartwarming. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.